So I was, uh, I got to the land early here and was up the hill, uh, sitting in the sun and uh, taking a walk. And I came across this beautiful, pretty big rattlesnake uh, lying sort of half on the earth, half on the tarmac. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's hard to tell whether it's a rattlesnake or a big garter snake. You've got to get sort of close enough to check it out, but not too close. And uh, just sunning itself in the sun, absorbing the rays and minding its own business. And, and then at some point it just, as they do, just slide away. So beautiful to watch. And I thought that was quite fitting given them giving this talk on the senses and, you know, and, and certain animals and reptiles, they, they embody certain certain different senses. Yeah, so, you know, the snakes are very sensory. You know, the belly is always on the ground, right? So they're feeling, sensing, vibration, really sensitive tongue, smells, scents, and uh, not very good vision, but very uh, in touch with uh, movement and sensation. And I wondered. I was. You know, it's just interesting to put yourself into the into the experience of another being, to imagine seeing life through that door, through that lens. You know, imagine moving through life on your belly. You, know, you have a different relationship to the earth. <laughs> a different relationship to two-leggeds and four-leggeds who have pokey feet and want to stand on you. So the natural world, as I'm going to speak about tonight, is full of those examples of creatures and animals and beings that live with a very different sensory awareness and survive, you know, through a heightened sensory awareness. We have managed to uh, evolve in a certain way that we're, we're not so dependent on our senses, more, more the mental sense, you know, obviously the visual and the auditory, but less as a survival. And um, so they've kind of gone to sleep to, 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 to a greater or lesser degree for some of us. And yet, the wonderful vehicles, the wonderful doorways to presence, to the here and now, to our experience, to the world around us, to reality. So the Buddha talked in different ways about using the senses as a, as a doorway, as a vehicle for, for mindfulness for presence, for insight. So um, and, and Buddha, as he did in many different ways, had a very specific use for training the mind to be aware of the senses, both as a vehicle for, for mindfulness, since, it's, since we're so not in the present. So that's the first. And the fact that they're such a primary part of our experience and the Buddha said, if we're going to identify with a certain aspect of our experience, better to identify with the body than the mind, because the body is much slower. And the mind is so quick and slippery, 
It's actually easier to ground in the body. And, um, but where, where he particularly uh, instructed people to pay attention was to, um, to the different aspects of, of, of our experience and really breaking down how, it, how sensory experience happens. So from a Buddhist psychology point of view, there's the sense organ, like the ear, and then the sense object, like a sound, and then when those two come together, there's hearing consciousness. You can see half of you already falling asleep. We're getting technical here. So we have the, we have the organ, the eye, and then we have the object, the light, and then we have, and, and, and the light comes on, the seeing consciousness happens. And the same with all the senses. So these, these three things come together, the, the organ, the object, and the consciousness. So technically, we have six different consciousnesses in a way. Hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, consciousness, and thinking consciousness. And they're all happening somewhat simultaneously. We don't really notice that they're actually firing separately. And then then the attention discriminates and pulls out certain preferences or certain highlights certain aspects and data, which we call our experience. And that's all happening very selflessly. It's all happening by itself. Fortunately, we don't have to do, we don't have to, Hear a hear me ring the bell and then go. Mm, what's that? Mm, is that a sound or is that a smell? I think it's a smell. No, it's a sound. It must mean something. Mm, why is it ringing the bell? No, it just happens spontaneously. It's known effortlessly, and that's that's our experience. And it, because it's so effortless, we kind of go to sleep. We mostly, unless it's unless it's something that's very stimulating that we want or it's threatening, we mostly or it's or it's beautiful in a certain way. We don't give it that much attention. And just like with different other aspects of the teaching, um, this particular uh, tracking of, of sense experience is, 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 is one of the building blocks for seeing how the mind creates suffering or how the mind creates freedom in relationship to experience. So in any moment, there's different sense experiences happening and there's different relationship to those experiences we either like them or we don't like them or they're neutral if we, you know and if we like them what do we do we buy it <laughs> or we hold on to it or we grab it or we want more of it yeah we all know this nothing not rocket science if we don't like it there's aversion there's contraction there's resistance there's feeling of suffering unless we get rid of the, the, the unwanted, unpleasant sensory thing. And if it's neutral, we don't care. Now, most of you have heard this a million times if you've come to Spirit Rock a lot, this primary orientation to experience. And the instruction is to, is to get really refined with the attention and to see oh, how, how is all this, this sensory world that I live in, how does it inform me? How, does, how do I relate to it? How does, how does it bring happiness or difficulty or strife or stress. So like the squeaky chairs, you know, a good example. You're sitting in meditation, you come to Spirit Rock, it's a beautiful summer evening, and, and then someone next to you is fidgeting all the time. You know, and, this, you know, this, and you can't fidget here without being noticed because it's, <laughs> it's, you know, it's deliberate. You know. 
so um so there's you know this there's it maybe you listen to the pleasant sound of the breeze or the crickets and then someone's squeaking away and there's a reactivity right oh i wish i wish it was quiet i wish it was silent i wish they were still i'll only be happy if they stop fidgeting and so we create a lot of stories and 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 then we get fixed and, and we 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 are, our experience contracts around demanding life be a certain way no fidgeting human beings good luck doesn't happen as you can as you would have heard they heard the symphony this evening of squeakiness um, So the Buddha, in this very famous uh, discourse that he gave quite soon after his awakening, talked about the, it's called the fire sermon. Um, sounds like a little sort of preacherly. Um, he talked about the senses uh, being on fire, hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, um, being on fire, fire with, what fire with, the mind that's consumed with some kind of reactivity around those things that causes suffering, that causes a certain craving or wanting or aversion or resistance or hatred. And the, the practice leads to a certain cooling. Nibbana is a cooling out of that fire of suffering, of pain, of, of struggling, of resisting, of wanting experience to be a certain way. And that's why we pay attention in a, in a subtle way with our mindfulness practice to see, oh, where in my life am I, am I, am I reacting to, to sense experience that is just doing its thing, people doing their things, the weather doing its thing, my body doing its thing, sounds doing their thing. And what's my relationship to it? So... So pay attention to this part of your experience. So in, 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 the, in the teachings of, of causality that really is the central to the Buddha's teaching, it talks about noticing this experience of contact, of feeling, and reactivity. Contact, a sense contact. Every moment in our lives we have sense contact. And there's a feeling. It's pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And then there's a reaction. And that's the seed of whether we react and contract or whether we're at peace. Very simple, very ordinary, trainable. So I was uh, I was online today and um, uh, googling senses, just because it's always fun when you're writing a talk to Google things and see what comes up. So they came up with a website um, called Mose. It was some kind of uh, Oh, it's a Buddha lounge. <laughs> that was quite appropriate. And and the tagline was, uh, "Mose is a state of mind and an indulgence of the senses. Enjoy your senses. Enjoy your visit. Then dwell with us at Mose Buddha Lounge and bring your friends. They will thank you." So this is one perspective of how we relate to the senses: is indulge them, get as much as you can, as much exp- sense experience as you can. It's a really common part of our cultural myth or conversation. Yeah, get as much experience. Travel and eat and you know, there's all these books coming out. A thousand 
places to go before you die and a thousand foods to eat before you die and a thousand this and like, that's oh, a busy life. And like cramming all this sensory experience in, you know, before, too late, before you can't anymore. Right? That's one particular view of what brings happiness. I'm sure you've tried it. <laughs> 674 places. I've got a lot to do this year. So, but it's a, but it is a really common. I mean, it's, it's what it's the, it's the seed of our of our culture, really. So, it's it's what fuels the the GDP. Yeah. Is is this rapacious hunger for sensory experience? This is from Thich Nhat Hanh, who has a, a very different perspective about what happens when we're not discerning about what we, what we take in. He says, we are exposed to so many forms, colors, sounds, smells, tastes, touch, and ideas that are toxic and rob our body and consciousness of their well-being. Despair, fear, and depression may all be a result of ingesting too many toxins through sense impressions. Instead, my individuals should be mindful of what their senses ingest so they can make more choices that leave them feeling peaceful and light rather than anxious and sad. So he's pointing to discrimination. Okay, so we have this amazing sensory world and sensory experience, and it's ours for the taking, as it were. But it, but this certain, this certain discrimination will lead to a greater sense of well-being versus others. I mean, we all know the experience of having of of going down a certain sensory tunnel, and it's too much, and we feel sick. You know, post Thanksgiving, post Christmas dinner, post whatever it is that you're into, Ben and Jerry's ice cream, you know, beer. You know, it's interesting that we, you know, no matter how delicious a sensory experience is, at some point we feel sat- satiated. And then if we keep going, we feel sick and we feel repulsed by it. Yeah. So the pleasure isn't in the thing itself, right? Because clearly if it was, we could just keep you know, eating those kettle chips and it would be just fine. But I know when I eat one of those big bags, which I do, and I just don't feel good afterwards. <laughs> but the hunger for that crunchy, salty, cheesy flavor is, is really tempting. So, as I said, the, the, the foundation for the practice is, is to use the senses with mindfulness as a doorway to presence, as a doorway to grounding here, just as we did in the meditation. Using awareness of sensation, of breath, of sounds, of sights as a support. Because the mind is so fleeting, so keen to pull us into some mental la-la land. I often quote this poem from Billy Collins when I'm teaching retreats called In the Moment. And he's really speaking about his sensory experience where he says, um, it was a June, it was a, it was a, Day in June, or lawn and sky, the kind that gives you no choice but to unbutton your shirt and sit outside in a rough wooden chair. 
I could feel the day offering itself to me, and I wanted nothing more than to be in the moment. But which moment? Not this one, or that one, or this other one, or any of those that were scuttling by didn't seem perfectly right for me. Plus, I was too knotted up with questions about the past and his tall, evasive sister, the future. And so the priceless moments of the day were squandered one by one, or more likely a thousand at a time, with quandary and pointless interrogation. All I wanted to be was a pea of being inside the green pod of time, but that was not going to happen today, I had to admit to myself. So that's sort of like our meditation, right? We sit down, it's a beautiful summer night, I'm just going to be present to the lovely evening and the warmth, and then, hmm, well, what am I going to do this weekend? And why is that person squeaking so much? What's up with that? Why aren't they all the chairs at Spirit Rock? God, I should be hiking. It's a beautiful night. You know, and on it goes. And so we miss, you know, because when we, we become removed from the sensory experience, we shift to the mental sphere. And the, the, the sensory sphere is full of uh, wonderful teachings and the simplicity of our experience. So the, this teaching that the Buddha gave to Bahia, this wandering monk, where he, he asked for the, the, the essence of the Buddha's teaching. And, and, the, and the Buddha said, it's, it's like this. In the seeing, there is just the seeing. In the hearing, there is just the hearing. In the sensing, there is just the sensing. In the cognized, there is just the cognized. When you when you see that there's just in the seen, just the seen, in the heard, just the heard, in the sense, just the sense, in the cognized, just the cognized. This will be the end of suffering. He says a whole bunch of other stuff too, but I'm just condensing it. Because I know you're busy and don't have much time and <laughs> just like this guy, he said, just give me the essence of the teaching. But it's, you know, it's pointing to the simplicity of the experience. When you hear a sound, it's just sound. When you feel a sensation in the body, it's just sensation. All the rest is story. All the rest is made up. All the rest is constructed reality, which we take to be true. And often the moments of deepest clarity and peace and quiet and connection are when we're not overlaying our experience with, or overlaying our sense of experience with a lot of extra data. Things reveal themselves. It's why we meditate. It's why we do retreat practice, because we strip away some of those accretions and we just see the simplicity of our experience revealing itself. So there are many different views in Buddhism about how to relate to the senses. There's a, there's a, um, uh, you could say a more mm, renunciate view, which is the, the, the sensory world is to be, is to be avoided. Um, because it stimulates the, the, these fires of, of wanting and, and, dis- and the like. And then there's, there's later schools in Buddhism, the tantric schools of Buddhism, that gave a very different point of view, which was that if everything in this world uh, has Buddha nature, including our bodies, including our senses, including our sensory experience, then surely we, need to, then we, we can use that as part of our practice. So it's a very different relationship to our sensory experience that sees the senses as a doorway to 
to wisdom, as a doorway to the sacred, as a doorway to, to understanding, to reality. For myself, having done a lot of my practice over these years in outdoors, in nature, my view of working with the senses is deeply informed by, by that, by the power of using the senses as a support, as a vehicle for awareness and practice. So one of the, one of the, the, uh, the roots of the word sense is to find one's way to find one's way. And so I think of the senses as a, as a way to help us find our way back to ourselves, back to the truth. This is a poem I wrote called The Moment. It speaks to this a little bit. The envelope of this moment invites us into her cloisters, to the song of thrushes, to wind rattling leaves, and the fog hovering, descending its moist touch onto branch and blade. Yet the stories of my mind keep luring me into tunnels of plots and dead ends, of fantasy and worry, and meditation becomes a tug of war between the grace of morning with its sunny pleasures and the video game of thought. How odd it is even a contest. What can compete with scent of sage and mint, of bay leaves flickering and sparrows darting among the branches? The inner world is tenacious, and the present moment demands, like a lover, to say yes to its barbs, its petals, its all. So, the world is inviting us to pay attention, and there is so much to be discovered in that through our senses. This is from, from about William Blake. Um, somebody commenting on his life said, Blake said that the body was the soul's prison unless the five senses are fully developed and open. If they're not, and let me read that again. Blake said that the body was the soul's prison unless the five senses are fully developed and open. Blake considered the, the senses the windows of the soul, windows to spirit. Walt Whitman said in a similar way, he said, seeing, hearing, and feeling are miracles. And they are miracles. I was listening, I was in, this, in my house today and listened to the various bird song this morning. And it's, it's, it's a miracle where a bird sings, that we hear it, and all the turkeys <laughs> doing their, what do turkeys do? They gobble. Diane Ackerman, who wrote, wrote a wonderful book on the senses. If you want to explore this, the, the senses, she wrote a book called The Natural History of the Senses. Wonderful book about going into really rich detail of the history of the senses and uh, how different cultures relate to the senses and how we develop them evolutionarily. So, um, so I'm going to go through the senses a little bit and talk about them as practice, how we relate to them as practice. And the first is sounds. And um, how many people spend time outdoors here, out in nature? I imagine most of you do, yeah. And if you don't, you, we drag you out to Spirit Rock and you get a little bit, just, just walking to the parking lot, you have to you know, deal with the trees and you know, like green stuff and you know, flying things and owls. And so we kind of you know, surreptitiously sneak it in, you know, just a little a little nature hit, 
And it's like, well, it's not bad, that green stuff. It's pretty mellow. I'm actually, um, as a side note, I'm um, my my one of my biggest wishes, intentions right now is is to find ways to have the experience of being outdoors in nature researched and its impact on the body and the brain. There's, there's very little research being done about the impact of, of, of why nature has such an impact on our being. And we all know that because most of us go out to the beach or to the ocean or hiking or in our back garden. Or, right? So there's some instinctual knowing of its benefit, but very little data on the actual, on what, what happens as any neuroscientist there, just let me know and you know, talk to me later. <laughs> so, um, but, the, but sound is also a beautiful doorway to meditation. I remember the times that I went to Bodh Gaya, to, um, to the temple where the, the Bodhi tree, where the Buddha attained awakening and wonderful pilgrimage site. And the sounds of the crickets are very loud at night. Um, sometimes similar to here, uh, but quite deafening there. And um, uh, I, I often take, when I'm doing my nature retreats, I take people to places where there's a lot of sound. I mean, there's water or streams or wind on a hilltop, or bird song, and just to see what happens to the mind when we, when we turn the attention to hearing in, in a meditative way. Yeah, because when we turn attention to hearing, it invites a certain spacious, receptive quality. Right? You can't do hearing. You can't make it happen. Right? So if we, if we just get quiet right now, listen to the sounds of the evening, which are probably pretty subtle. Squeaking. Some of you may notice uh, a sound of the inner ear, the sound of silence, what, the, what Ajahn Sumedho calls the nada sound, sound of silence, which is also a beautiful doorway into a very deep quality of presence. Anybody notice that? A slight whistling? It's actually a wonderful um, object of meditation. You have to be quite quiet, uh, quite a subtle level of attention to hear it. He, when he, he practiced this a lot in the forest in, in, in Thailand, and then he moved to London, to uh, Highgate, I think it was, North London, and uh, he made himself practice it, walking down the road with the double-decker buses driving by, and the taxis, and the, and the people talking, and was able to maintain awareness of that subtle nada sound, even, even with a lot of noise. Usually we associate it with silence. But notice what happens when you just practice, when you turn the attention to listening. What do you notice? It's quiet. It's quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and what happens to the body? Still. Anything else? 
relaxed? What happens to the mind? Focused? A lot. Surrendered? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a certain receptive quality, right? You, we have to we have to settle back in a way and receive, which is a wonderful meditative attitude and also a wonderful attitude for life to receive. Right? We're so busy doing and accomplishing and fixing and running around and not a lot of the receptive quality. So um, this is a poem from Mary Oliver. So there's the, there's the experience of sound, there's the sense door of seeing, which is really probably where most of us live in a sensory world, um, sight being the predominant sense door as for predators, which we are. Um, and so much can, be, can happen through that sense gate. This is what Mary Oliver has to say about it. It's called mindful. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. And she goes on to say, Nor am I talking about the exceptional or the fearful or the dreadful or the extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, and the very drab, the daily presentations. O good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these, the untrimmable light of the world, the oceans shine, the prayers that are made out of grass? So um, there's a lot of beauty to be had in this world. And when we start waking up to our senses, coming to our senses, living in our senses, then we also are we're more able to be touched with what's here. You know, it's not we don't go around with blinkers, so we also see the pain and the sorrow and the difficulty and the struggle, and but we also see what beauty is here. And so much of practice is is orienting, cultivating wholesome states of mind. Right. Normally, uh, you know, biologically, our minds attune to what's threatening or fearful in the environment. Uh, it takes three positive out- experiences to outweigh a negative one. Uh, our mind leans towards the difficult because that's how we survived. Right. But there's a whole lot of other stuff out there. Beauty. You know, this, this weather we've been having, the spring that we've had, the summer, the flowers, the, the sky, the light. But we have to, as they say, you know, as they say in Vegas, you have to be present to win. We have to be present to be touched. You know, the delight, the joy the, the, that's, that's possible. So often on retreat, when people are struggling, this is happening, I was teaching a loving-kindness retreat last week, and you know, a fair few people were going through difficulties as they do on retreat, as we do in life. And one of the instructions I give a lot is, you know, yes, it's true that this sorrow, this pain, this grief, this loss, this sadness, whatever's happening, and what else is happening? You know, as you walk down to the dining room, do you notice the, all the fawns that are 
jumping around, you know, like lambs, you know, just just fresh, you know, just new. We we had several newborn la- uh, fawns around on the property. Um, or do you notice the grasses swaying in the breeze? Do you notice the the the, the color of blue? Do you notice that which is supporting you to feel more? That the life is going on despite the sorrow that's happening inside. And what, when we do that, then it gives us more capacity, it gives us more space, it gives us more presence to deal with the, with the difficulty. So it's, the, it's inclining the attention towards that which is uplifting for the mind. And we just happen to be living in a really beautiful place where that's kind of easy to do that. You know, it's not difficult to you know, look around and see the beauty here whether it's in each other or in the nature. So I teach many different practices on these retreats. One of the practices I teach is a um, uh, practice of space and um, to be mindful of space. So right now in this rather low-ceilinged room with a lot of people in it, how many of you notice the space in here? There's a lot of space. And the space allows for the room to be here, and the trailer and the people. And so when you go outside at night, or tonight, you know, take some time to look up at the sky. Do a sky-gazing meditation. One of my favorite practices, you walk up a hill by the ocean, somewhere where there's a lot of vista, and that the, then you do an eyes-open meditation and mingle, mingle, the, mingle awareness with the sky, with the ocean. So you get that sense of vastness. Normally we're focused on the particular. It might be at the ocean and we're looking at the seagull, you know, or the trash, or something, you know, and there's this beautiful, you know, blue, blue, blue. So one of the reasons I'm, I'm, I'm talking about this is because, you know, in, in certain in certain teachings, as I was saying, in, 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 in a, from a more conservative point of view, sometimes sensory experience is is viewed sort of negatively as well. It's just a, it's just something for you to get hooked on. It's something for you to get caught in grasping or craving or wanting. But the other side of that is it's also a doorway, which is more of, an, it's more of the, the orientation towards emptiness. Seeing it arising, passing selflessly, for example. But we can also use the senses to, to lean into the fullness, or what the Buddha called suchness, the mystery, the, the, the beauty, to feel a sense of reverence, to feel a sense of connection, feel a sense of awe and or love appreciation, gratitude. There's a lot of things to be appreciative and and to feel grateful for in this life. I remember when I first came to to this country and I got a camper van, bought a camper van in Florida and drove across country and all around up the East Coast and the West Coast and went down to the the Southwest and went to the Grand Canyon and and I realize why Americans use the word awesome. It's awesome. <laughs> awesome. And I said that. I said, wow, it's awesome. Awesome. It's actually awesome. It's very awesome. <laughs> it's 
because it is. It's it's phenomenal. The the the, the what the the majesty of what's here in this in this in this land. Or you go to Yosemite. You don't have to go very far at all to feel land. And to see how that touches you. To let yourself be open to that. I was with some friends the other day and we were watching a spider weave its web. It was above us, so we were watching it sort of from underneath and it, the way the light was catching it, we were, it was really easy to see it making its very complicated web. And what I discovered, at least this particular spider, is um, they, he would often carry, he, she, who knows, I wasn't paying that much attention, uh, <laughs> two strands at the same time, he'd dang, he would you would climb down one, tag it, and then move the next one along, and then go up the one he just pulled down. And it was just quite amazing. Yeah. But again, it requires that we pay attention. It requires that we get present. We slow down enough when we're seeing and <coughs> taking it in. I'm not going, oh, hurry up, can you just finish this already? So I've I got to go to work. <laughs> So what about the, the, the sense of, of touch? Sensations of, in the body of, of touch sensations, breath, like right now as you're, as you're sitting listening, are you aware of your body? As you, can you listen through your body? There's a way we can listen without so much through our head, but just receiving the words through our body. The body is always registering information always engaged in communication and dialogue. This is from Achan Mun, a great Thai meditation master. He said, in your, ve- in, in your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to leave the body. Never allow the mind to leave the body, as if it could. Imag- examine its nature and see the elements that comprise it. When its true nature is seen fully, fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. So to move through the world inhabiting the, 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 your sensory body, this body of touch, as opposed to the eyebrows upwards. And then the sense of taste. I'm just whipping through these because I'm running out of time. So um, we're going to do. We're going to do. Some of you, probably a lot of you, have done this already. But we're going to do an eating meditation. So we brought in some um, some burgers and fries and uh, and some um, cho chocolate. No, we brought in some raisins. Um, sorry, that's all I could get access to. I you know, tried the M and M's. I once did. I once once did this exercise. In, um, so take a couple of raisins and pass the pass the cup on. Don't eat them. Just put them in your hand and look at them. So I once did this this exercise in juvenile hall. I had about I don't know two hundred kids, maybe more. The whole the whole the whole juvenile hall was there, and um, so I figured raisins wouldn't go down so well. But the the, the M and M's were a big hit. Um, but they had a hard time just putting it on their tongue without chewing them and shoving them all in. 
So how many people have done the raisin exercise? This is probably old hat for some of you. Yeah, okay. So you have to bring your beginner's mind. Good, there's a lot of you haven't done it. So the point of this is that we, um, you know, with every sense experience, we often don't give it that much attention, mostly because we've we've been there, done that, and our mind is thinking about something else, and we're rushing to the next thing, or we're having a conversation. Sure, I'll have some. This is dinner for some of you. So don't eat them all at once. Did everybody have some? Put your hand up if you don't have it. Can you pass those to the people behind you? Thanks. So take a look at this lovely sun-dried grape. Glistening, sticky, smelly, moist, wrinkly. Smell it. Feel it, right? So we're engaging all the senses of touch, seeing, smelling. I don't think it's making much sound, but a little bit when you squish it around. So what we're going to do is take one raisin. This is the renunciate path. And we're going to put the one raisin on our tongue, close your mouth, close your eyes, and just don't chew yet. Close your eyes, put the raisin on your tongue, and just be present to sensation, smell, touch. You can move it around, but don't chew it. Notice the all the movements in the mouth, the tongue, the saliva, the jaw, the bones, the teeth. And then more importantly, notice your relationship to it. Right? Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Desire to just chew the thing. Desire to throw all the, all the other ones in. Right? Now start chewing it slowly. Mindful of taste and flavor, smell. Take your time chewing. And in your own time swallowing. Picking the bits out from your teeth. Resist the temptation to put more in. Notice the lingering smell, fragrance, taste. Notice how it shifts from being pleasant to unpleasant to pleasant to neutral to pleasant, unpleasant. So what do you notice? Sweetness? Yeah, sweet. Tender? Hmm? Wrinkly. <laughs> notice the texture, smell. Joy. Mm-hmm. Anybody hate it? Boring? Huh? Aversion? 
Uh huh. So aversion, desire for more. What was your aversion to? The whole thing. So aversion to the whole thing. Okay. One. I did this once, and a woman said, "You know, I've eaten raisins for twenty years. I buy those little boxes of Sunkist, and I just shove them down, and when I'm at work and driving, whatever." And I did this exercise, and I realized I hate the taste of raisins. <laughs> I just hadn't paid attention. <laughs> so, aversion can happen in different forms, in different ways. Uh, what else? Yeah. Noticing saliva reactions, tingling. Uh-huh. Patience or impatience? Patience. Oh, good. How many people are impatient? <laughs> How many people want to shove them over? Okay, you can put the raisins in. You can put the other raisins in now if you want. If you have more. It's a supper. Okay. So notice if you just go unconscious when you do that. Right? You swallowed them already. You, did they touch the sides? And then also with with we you know with sensory contact, the first taste is always impactful. And the longer we have the contact with the sense stimuli, then the um, the receptors stop firing as as strongly, so we don't notice it as much. That's why, and and that then that's when we space out. Just like we don't notice the touch of our clothes on our skin, it would drive us nuts if we when you put you know your clothes on in the morning. And a lot of sensation, coolness, or whatever texture, but then we forget about it because we, the attention needs to go elsewhere. And so that's why we space out. We we get very engaged with just the same with meditation. We sit down, we follow our breath. It feels really engaging to start with, and then it stops having that same stimulus. So we what do we do? We check out. We go. To the, we go to the mind. We start fantasizing. That's why mindfulness requires a lot of persistence, you know, because the, the, to, to counter that, the, the tendency of the mind is to slip away, because it's not grabbing us. So, practice this when you're home. You know, eating is a beautiful thing. We spend a lot of time thinking about it, fantasizing about food, cooking, shopping, prepping, planning, eating. You know. And then we come to eat and we sort of, you know, watch TV or space out or something, talk and check email. And, and it's a beautiful thing just to taste these raisins. Right? Sometimes people say it's very sat- one raisin is, is, is very satisfying. And then we slow down, we eat less because it's more satisfying because we taste it, we're more aware of our body. So I wanted to read you a, a prayer from the Ute peoples. It's a prayer that I always read on every nature course that I do. And really, I draw a lot of my my teachings when I'm outdoors from indigenous cultures uh, who have a much more uh, subtle, refined sensory awareness because they're living close to the land. So this is a, a prayer from the Ute peoples who mostly in the southwest and Colorado. Earth, teach me stillness. 
as the grasses are stilled with light. So listen, listen to the sensory nature of this poem. Earth teach me stillness as the grasses are stilled with light. And how much wisdom comes when we pay attention. Earth teach me suffering as old stones suffer with memory. Earth teach me humility as hum- blossoms are humble with beginning. Earth teach me caring as the mother who secures her young. Earth teach me courage as the tree which stands all alone. Earth teach me limitation as the ant which crawls on the ground. Earth teach me freedom as the eagle which soars in the sky. And teach me resignation as leaves which die in the fall. Earth teach me regeneration as the seed which rises in spring. And teach me to forget myself as melted snow forgets its life. Earth, teach me to remember kindness as rain drenches dry fields. So, you know, there's teachings abound everywhere when we pay attention, particularly when we pay attention to our sensory experience. So my hope or my my invitation to you is is to really look, see if that's true, see if that's really alive in your experience as you move through your day, as you go outside, as you listen to your body, as you listen to your senses. <clears throat> I was up at some hot springs this weekend, <clears throat> which are always good places to be aware of your senses. And this particular place has a um, very intense hot pool and very intense, not very intense, but a cold pool, cold plunge, in a, but a very intense hot pool. And and the, the hot is almost unbearable to go in and the cold is feels unbearable in a certain way. And, you know, but, you know, with some presence, it's just sensation and tingling and burning and freezing and burning and freezing. It's apparently healthy to do that. So, you know, Um, but I really enjoy it from a meditation point of view, just to see, just to see what the reaction is to the the, the body saying, get out, you're going (laughs) to boil (laughs) and get out, you're going to freeze. And just to feel, it's just sensation. And at some point, the cold feels hot, and the hot doesn't. And the hot doesn't feel cold; it just feels tingly. And it's just to see the relativity of perception. So the the last point I want to make is that um, for me the 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 power the potency of of doing my practice outside is that there's something very um, well it's hard to put words on it but. Mm. Hmm? Soothing. Soothing. Uh, that is that's that's part of it. Um, what I'm trying to say is, uh, when we can attune to our sensory experience—seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching—in a way, in the way that the Buddha was pointing to to be here, in the seeing, just the seeing, and the hearing, just the hearing. Without the overlay of our mind. 
there is there is there's a, there's an opening to a depth of perception and a depth of awareness that's very liberating. That's very freeing. And I've read poems in here at different times that point to that. <clears throat> that's um, as these things are. They're hard to put names on. They're hard to put words on. But you know, as as has been researched people's the most common place for people to experience whatever word we put on it the mystical the sacred the divine essence is mostly outdoors way more than in church and synagogue and temple and so there's something to be discovered there you know, when the Buddha gave a teaching, he would say, now go away, go off into the woods and find a root of a tree and meditate. There's something powerful about being, being around, being, be, you know, w- being outside wakes up the senses. You know, in our, in our cloistered environments, in our cars, in our conditioned houses, and when our, the senses deaden. And so we lose a certain vitality, a uh, certain doorway to to that which can awaken us in a certain way. So in the morning I do my meditation on my deck, hot or cold, uh, because it, it wakes up the senses. There's more aliveness, there's more presence, there's more wakefulness. So try it wherever you are. Open the window if you don't have a garden or a yard. So I want to leave you with a poem which is points to this idea of, of, of touching the mystical through, through the senses outdoors. It's, and it's a poem I wrote called The Trees with the Lights in It. And it's from a, that, that line is from uh, Annie Dillard who was writing about this young girl who was, went blind and had an operation, re- recovered her sight, and then she talked about, I think the experience was so amazing to have her sight back that when she was out in the woods, she saw that the trees had lights in them. They weren't just ordinary trees. They were just, there was a sensory a sense of sight had been awakened in a certain way. So uh, it's sort of speaking to that experience. I didn't know what I was looking for as I sat on the lawn watching Autumn drape her scarlet hair over the woods. It was the evergreen, the sugar pine, that was breathing life, a fire into the cold air that leapt off the page of melancholy. And I knew then the burning bush, when God touches her hand, the ordinary catches a light, and we don't know who it is that is on fire. We are both consumed in a communion of rapture. We step off the shelf of time, and enter a vision from which the world never appears the same. Now when the vision fades, I still pass by that tree, knowing of our sacred pact. We exchange a knowing nod, and I wait, turning my senses into kindling, to be ignited into song or into light. So, thank you for your attention. Nice to be here as always. Lovely to see you. And as I said, we'll be up in the upper hall next week. Thank you for your donations and dana and your presence. And 
Have a wonderful sensory alive week. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.